This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs look at a fairly recent case of Jack Main, a pseudonym versus R2020 New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal 150, which raises the issue of what happens when a sexual assault complainant has a history of making false sexual assault claims. Currently in New South Wales, such false allegations can't be used by an accused to defend themselves at trial. For decades, the law has maintained that a jury simply cannot be told the complainant has previously made similar false allegations because of a provision introduced to protect sexual assault complainants from humiliating and improper cross-examination about their sexual history. In Jack Main, the accused faced a number of sexual assault charges which he said were fabricated by the complainant against him. The New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal confirmed that the law in New South Wales prevented him from using the complainant's tendency to fabricate sexual assault allegations in his defence but did hold that a trial court in such a case has a power to stay the proceedings as an abusive process. The Whigs discussed the practical policy and human rights implications of this law and examined the case for legislative reform. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Whigs. It's so fantastic to be here again to discuss Legal topics to you. We do it with pleasure. Emmanuel Kirkusharian. Jim. So good to have you in the studio. Good to be here. Thank you. Felicity Graham. As ever. As a ever. pleasure. That is so lovely to hear. Stephen Lawrence, MLC. Hey, mate. Good to be here. Good to have you here. It's fantastic to have the band back together. I love it. Love these sessions. Going to start today with Felicity Graham taking it off the, uh, what is it? Taking it to the mount. Going to swing for the cheap seats. Let's go. <laughs> Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about a case of Jack Maine and how it concerned a particular legislative provision in New South Wales that's quite an outlier in Australian jurisdictions. So just to be clear, clear that's a pseudonym, right, Jack Maine? Jack Maine is a pseudonym. Um Jack Main was my client in uh, a trial and series of litigation in the CCA, the Court of Criminal Appeal and the High Court of Australia. How was the name chosen? The CCA chose it and we were quite um, mystified. All we could find out was that it's some kind of German punk band or something. (laughs) Interesting. So Mm. just for the record... He was my client before he was Felicity's client. That's true. And I totally missed the point. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the trial wasn't Stephen reached. Completely I was preparing missed another trial at the time. Oh, I, I missed the point. Yeah. And you're not practising anymore, is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Lucky. lucky He's client. making the laws now. <laughs> 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 Love it. But if I'd opened the file, I definitely would have. You would have found it straight away. <laughs> You did open the file and you did not find the point. <laughs> Mate, I ran another trial that week. This oh, one not, not reached. Well, there's, 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 All right, what are we doing? Let's get to what it. Let's get to it. Um, we're we're, talking we're about licking or is this the wigs? Prior sexual history and fabricated complaints. So we're talking about the operation of a provision that is now Section 294, Capital C, Capital B of the Criminal Procedure Act, formerly Section 293 of the Criminal Procedure Act, formerly Section 409, Capital B of the Crimes Act. It's been around in New South Wales (laughs) since... Fact check. 
July 1981. It's been on the books for a long time. And it applies in criminal proceedings for what's called a prescribed sexual offence, which includes a range of offences, things like sexual assault offences, sexual touching offences, which is the newish name for indecent assault and other like offences. The starting rule is that evidence relating to the sexual reputation of the complainant and evidence which discloses or implies that the complainant has or may have had sexual experience or has or may have had a lack of sexual experience or has or may have taken part or not taken part in any sexual activity is admissible. This um, type of law is sometimes called a rape shield law or... um, We've spoken about this on the weeks before. We haven't done this topic before. Okay. Yeah. Inadmissible. Inadmissible. That's the starting rule. And so before it's important to remember that before we get to this rule, for this rule to even have any work to do, evidence has to be admissible to start with. You did say inadmissible. Yes. Okay, great. Evidence of prior sexual history is inadmissible. We've definitely spoken about this on the weeks before. Except if certain exceptions apply. But that's cool. I want to hear where part two goes. Yeah. So in New South Wales, there are some exceptions that are very specifically and quite narrowly drawn. All right. I think it's worth looking at the history of the provision and the way that it was presented as a reform of the criminal justice system designed to protect victims of rape from victimisation under the legal process and a reform designed to encourage rape victims to report offences to authorities to facilitate the administration of justice and conviction of guilty offenders at the same time to preserve the rights of the accused and to serve an educative function in further changing community attitudes to sexual assault. That's from the second reading speech of the bill by Premier Ran, And what he also said was that the things that the bill, as it then was, was trying to achieve was to prohibit irrelevant questioning of sexual assault victims about their prior sexual behaviour, that it shouldn't, um, that, that an accused person shouldn't be able to rely on scandal or gossip about the other person or on rumour or knowledge of that other person's sexual behaviour with others as a basis for assuming consent to sexual intercourse and that the law should not permit humiliating and irrelevant questioning about details of previous sexual conduct and attitudes. And I think it's kind of really worth focusing just our minds on what is the mischief which is sought to be addressed here, which is on its first introduction, prohibiting irrelevant questioning, prohibiting humiliating and irrelevant questioning and prohibiting the use of scandal or gossip, etc. So-called slut-shaming. Yeah. But, yeah, it's interesting. And I just think that when you look at the way that the provision is drafted, as we'll go through it in a bit more detail, it doesn't do those things. Those, and no, those things it actually are doesn't already, do a lot of those things. That's th- right. Those things are already not permitted to be done. You can't ask irrelevant questions. You mm. can't ask harassing, humiliating questions. Well, it's interesting because relevance in this 
it would have been argued at that time that the sexual history of a complainant was relevant. That is to say, the fact that a complainant had previously consented to multiple partners made her, more, her usually more likely to consent in this particular case. And part of what this does is prevent that. Now, I think that is irrelevant. Mm. I think that that reasoning doesn't flow. Interestingly, though, that reasoning is available now against defendants. Tendency. So, yeah. Mm. Even where it's consensual. Mm. So, say, for example, you have consensual sex with a person of a particular look or mm. style or age. That's used against you. And it's said to be relevant in that context. I suppose it's not relevant in either. So this comes up more when we talk about the exceptions that I'm sure Flick's about to come to, right? But one of the exceptions is around the time of the commission of the alleged offence. So, for example, it's often still admissible to prove, for example, that a complainant had sex with another person around the time of the alleged offence. And that's where, and this isn't, I presume, going to be the focus of what Flick talks about, but that's another example of a grey line in relation to the policy here, right? Because I think why this was predominantly brought in was to stop a line of questioning or evidence that goes along the lines of, you say that when you went home from the pub with him that you didn't intend to have sex with him and that you didn't consent when he raped you, you know, in the park across the road, but you've left that pub before with men and had sex with them in that yeah. park, right? Yeah. So yeah. this is what, for example, Justice Simpson identified in the case of Burton, a 2013 case, New South Wales CCA 335, and Her Honor said at seven, paragraph 70, Section 293 was introduced into the legislation for the specific purpose of putting an end to offensive and demeaning cross-examination that proceeded on the basis that evidence of consent by a person, then invariably female, to sexual engagement with one person, provi- person A, provided the foundation for an inference that that person also consented to sexual engagement with another person, person B. That process of reasoning has been banned from the criminal courts by this provision. But I think where I want to take the discussion today Mm. is in a slightly different direction because the provision does much more than that Mm. Um, and particularly because of the framing around disclosing or implying a lack of sexual experience or a possible lack of sexual experience on the part of a complainant the provision has been held to apply to lies in relation to sexual activity or experience or previous false complaints of sexual assaults or sexual crimes. Mm. Which and clearly have a relevance in proceedings in relation to credibility. Absolutely. Yeah. As I said before, you only get to this provision if the material is otherwise admissible. So, for example, you have to jump through the relevance hoop, you have to jump through the credibility of the complainant hoop, for example, and substantially so because of Section 103 of the Evidence Act. Um, You might also, depending on what you want to do, as was the case in Jack Main, have to jump through the tendency evidence hoops. Um, So just a bit of background to this case of Jack Main. In 2017, Jack Mayne was charged with one count of assault occasioning actual bodily harm and three counts of sexual intercourse without consent against the complainant. She was his former partner. We had, in the course of our um, preparation of the matter and through um, various different means, 
Our by way of, of the moment. Yeah, um, I heard you did really well. Thanks. Pressing the prosecution for disclosure of some material and then off the back of that, um, issuing subpoenas and obtaining other court records. We amassed um, a number of documents which revealed that there were uh, at least 12 incidents of fabrication previously by the complainant of um, sexual assault um, or similar conduct against uh, a number of males, including made-up males. They dated from um, back when the complainant was a teenager, complaints she'd made to school friends. Um, I won't detail all of the um, previous complaints, but they included also a long letter to a school friend um, detailing a number of complaints against uh, boys and uh, also a fabricated letter by way of an elaborate forgery which contained sexual assault allegations against an identified male and a number of unidentified males. The letter purported to be to the complainant from a lawyer about litigation relating to the sexual assaults. So she forged that letter? That's right. So she created a fake letterhead, a fake lawyer, a fake doctor, fake police officers, fake um, forensic testing. um, And And you missed all this, Steve. (laughs) There There had been a lack of disclosure in relation to the matter. I'll say that. Yeah. Must have been. Um. The other sort of incident I think worth mentioning as well in terms of the history um, that we obtained about the complainant ultimately we, we. was... Um, <laughs> it's a royal pronoun. Silken pronoun. <laughs> well, myself and the Aboriginal Legal Service. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm just on the facts and incredible. Sorry. It's extraordinary. Um, In 2009, the complainant made a false allegation of sexual assault to police against a person she identified as Leon. Um, It was quite uh, a detailed complaint about something that had um, happened allegedly at her home in the middle of the night involving um, also a weapon um, and alleged injuries and the complainant was taken to hospital. She ultimately um, told police that the complaint um, had been all made up. There was no Leon, there was no sexual assault. She was prosecuted for um, making a false complaint in um, a different state and she pleaded guilty to that offence and was sentenced in that state court Uh, for the offence. So we um, did a number of things. We put on a tendency notice. Um, We won that argument. We put on a permanent stay application on the basis that because we couldn't adduce critical evidence that was significantly probative exculpatory evidence, the court was effectively um, being used in this way where it lacked its essential integrity as a trial court. And so we, in the course of that application, also put on 
um, a Section 78B notice. Um, the New South Wales Attorney General intervened in the District Court and in the Higher Courts. Um, we lost the permanent stay application in the District Court at first instance, primarily on the basis that the court accepted some submissions by the Crown and the AG that um, he didn't, His Honour didn't have a power to uh, give a stay. We took it up to the Court of Criminal Appeal. We won on the basis that there is a stay power, but the court didn't stay the proceedings itself, sent it back to the district court. We applied for special leave in the High Court on a couple of points, but one of the points was a statutory construction point about whether or not this provision 294CB really does apply to fabricated sexual assault complaints. So had you had you had a ruling from the trial judge on that, that it did apply? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and they had to do that because there was binding authority from cases like um, M&R 1993 case, Bernthaler 1993, Langala in 2016, Allen in 2017, there were a series of CCI authorities that meant that was really a foregone conclusion in the district court. So was there evidence about her having a mental condition or illness? So we um, did some sort of research ourselves and commissioned an expert about that question. There was some evidence from the complainant about her kind of health and mental health. Um, But we asked the complainant to consent to being assessed for the purpose of the trial and and she didn't give that consent. Mm. So So was um, there any evidence at all of any conditions? Not really anything that... um, Sounds like a personality disorder. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Not all lies are mad. Some not all lies are mad. Well, exactly. Personality disorder is not mad. It's no, just, I guess uh, that's right. Yeah. Tell me, other than the complainant's accusation, what was the evidence against your client? There were um, there was complaint evidence, which um, is her again. Which is her again. Anything it else? was a relationship, wasn't it, between them? They were in a relationship. They were. Um, there were some. There was some evidence of some injuries, which were said to have. Um, being caused during the commission of the offences and there was some corroboration for the existence of the injuries because there were some presentations to a GP um, and there were um, some observations made in that regard, bruising and things like that. Okay. Um, But the case rested um, very much on the complainant. So if the complainant hadn't been believed, you would have won... If she'd not been blamed. Yeah. Yeah. So where's the DPP? Totally. I mean, why, why isn't the DPP quashing this? I mean, if that's... Yeah. yeah so It's hard to believe you'd run it, right? I know that DPPs, the officers come under some pretty big criticism lately by district court judges mm. for not thinking about credibility, but this is a prime example, isn't it? I mean, how do you get to reasonable probable cause yeah. for it not to be a malicious prosecution? Yeah. I well, mean, they multiple the no-bill applications were rebuffed. Um, so we... It's an interesting kind of thought, though, isn't it? Like, you have a person that's made so many 
this is a hypothetical scenario, for example, you have a person that's made so many false allegations before, at what point have they effectively sort of given up their right to advance a one-on-one sexual assault allegation? Well, I, I suspect the DPP doesn't like to accept that you reach such a point. I think, I think that, take out the words one-on-one allegation, I think that nobody should ever lose their right to have a determination made about sexual assault, no matter how many times you may have lied for it or cried wolf in the past, whatever. So do you mean yeah. a determination by a court or a prosecutor? Well, no, I mean a determination by... Police court. Police Police court. prosecutor court slash yeah, court. Slash, yeah, slash DPP. Totally. You know? Agree with and that. that. Yeah. So we don't need to wait to the last... You don't get to the last hurdle mm. um, because there may be, you can imagine many scenarios where there's a lot of evidence outside that cure the difficulties with credibility. But why are we wasting the courts or why are we wasting the high mm. court's time? It's interesting you say that because there's also evidence, for example, that people with certain types of personality disorders that will often lead to false claims or allegations of a different of different types, often to get attention basically to address underlying distress that they have, are more likely to be victimised in the view of certain experts as well yeah. because they're more likely to put themselves in a dangerous situation, it's more likely to respond in a way that means that they are victimised. So it's a sort of complex thing, isn't it? But the idea that you would deprive a court of such incredibly probative evidence, it's extraordinary. So why wasn't it stayed on appeal, Flicky? Because so, what happened on the appeal? The court said that you could theoretically stay it, right? Yeah, and they... I mean, they sat as a five-judge bench um, because we were asking them to overturn this line of authority about um, the provision applying to fabricated Mm. allegations. Um, And Justice Leeming thought we had a good point there. Um, The High Court refusing our special leave also suggested, yes, you've got a good point there, but come back after you've been convicted because fragmentation of criminal proceedings means we shouldn't take it on now. And, well, there's never going to be another High Court case because he got acquitted. Spoiler. Mm. Um, And the CCA said, no, you should go back, do your stay application again. Um, A number of the judges said on the stay application or, for example, on the voir dire, um, the provision doesn't apply. So the constraint on cross-examining the complainant or adducing this type of evidence on those preliminary applications um, doesn't exist. And so I had intended to go back, make the stay application again, apply to cross-examine the complainant on the stay application on all these matters so that the evidence that we would be excluded from adducing at the trial was really abundantly clear. Even though when I ran it first time round, everyone had accepted that the papers revealed sufficiently the evidence that I was going to be deprived of using in aid of my client um, without having to take the step of cross-examining the complainant. But um, in any event, we went back. The trial judge basically didn't allow me to make that further step on the stay application, the stay application. To call her on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's quite interesting that that kind of right to potentially cross-examine the complainant on a preliminary application because I had this matter where a sexual assault allegation with what looked on the papers that we got to be a false complaint, a false complaint against a family member, and we wrote to the DPP and said, look, if this matter proceeds, 
we're going to subpoena that family member and we're going to bring that family member to court on the stay application and prove through their evidence and other evidence that it was a false allegation. And it was clear from the documents we had that that family member had never been told that she'd made what seemed to be a false allegation against them. And so we said to the DPP, you've really got to talk to your complainant and explain to her the forensic consequences of this matter proceeding because she's obviously a relevant person for you to canvas her views. Mm. But you need to explain to her what is going to happen practically if you proceed with the matter because we will have no choice to advance our client's rights but to call that family member to court. And this could be a shockingly terrible event in the family and as between them. And then the matter was withdrawn. Mm. So it's an important, like for lawyers to think this stuff just can't be used, it's not actually correct. Mm. You can get it on a stay application. You can potentially Mm. get a stay if you can't adduce it in the trial. Mm. I think it's also worth coming back to what you were saying before, Manny, about the interrelationship between complainants and the system and their kind of right to have a ruling about whether or not matters should proceed, some process of decision-making, including within the DPP. Because as part of this matter, we um, obtained, after sort of pressing for disclosure of some conference notes between the DPP and the complainant after we had uncovered this material and said, like, we want to be able to use it, but we can't use it, but this is what we're planning to do. Um, And by the way, the DPP's approach to our situation was you can use the material, but you just have to remove all of the sexual content So you can cross-examine her about the make-false complaint. You could cross-examine her about having made fabricated complaints against males, but you can't um, do anything that would suggest that that relates to sex because that would... um, I reckon you could build something off that. I mean, imagine what you think if you're on a jury because you're sitting there hearing a rape case and then you're hearing it put to this person that she's made previous allegations against multiple men, but you're not being told that that was allegations of a sexual nature. And they're so all you, fabricated. And they're all fabricated. You're going to think to yourself, she's well, therefore they mustn't have been sex because surely if they were sex, they would have told us. That's right. Or would you think to yourself, they must be sex because this is sex and they're not telling us. No, because so you wouldn't think You just that. would be so confused. You'd be the, fir- the former because you're just Johnny Smith from the street. You can imagine the first jury note, though. What were the nature of the false allegations? Of course. But just coming back to these com- these right. conference notes. But um, it goes to her character as well. Can I tell them? Totally. Mm. Could, I say, could I say to a jury, ladies and gentlemen, if they were sexual allegations, I couldn't, I tell, couldn't you. tell you. I mean, you're, there, you're probably breaching the prohibition, right? Because it implies that they are. Well, because the combination of circumstances yeah, well, are right. like, yeah. I'm not going to tell you what they are, yeah. but if they were sexual, I couldn't tell you. And the jury's going to think, well, therefore, they must be sexual yeah. because why else wouldn't you tell us? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. But it's not evidence, I suppose. It's a direction. Because mm. mm. it's about evidence, this rule, isn't it? Mm. Across examining the complainant and adducing this type of evidence. It's nothing to do with its purpose. Nothing I know. It's nothing to do with it. Nothing. Well, this is a funny thing, right? Because under this provision, and I've made these applications successfully before, you can get in evidence of prior sexual history in a range of exceptions, right? And certain of them, if it's about a relationship proximate in time, if it's just proximate in time, part of a connected set of circumstances. So I did a sexual assault case where it was a house party 
complainant goes into bedroom, has sex with one man consensually, falls asleep in the bed, then there is sexual intercourse with the accused. She says she was asleep and didn't consent. He says that she was awake and consented. We had a 293, as it then was, argument about the admissibility of the first act of sexual intercourse and the judge allowed it in. And that was allowed in basically on the basis that it explains why she was in the bed. Um, we were arguing on behalf of the accused that if she consented at that point in time in the particular circumstance of the case, she was more likely to consent half an hour to an hour later. Which when you think about the policy of this, that's much more intention mm. with the policy of this legislation than a false complaint made years before. But mm. one's completely out and one is often in. Yeah. And really tests this idea of kind of tendency to have a state of mind, right? Or a kind of some sort of a guilty state of mind type issue where, oh, well, if you have sex with one person in one room, we're going to allow the jury to reason that you might be more likely to consent to sex with another person in the same room or another person in a different room. Some of that's pretty contestable, I would have thought, but that's apparently permissible. Mm. So this section's all over the place. Mm. It is. And I, I think it was pretty stark when you looked at the conference notes with the DPP because they discussed in detail with the complainant all of the different fabricated complaints and the history of that. And the Crown said in relation to beyond reasonable doubt, quote, not going to be hard to create a doubt. Um, you have lied. You have already lied. It makes it very difficult. You have, quote, lied about it before. The complainant sent amongst other things, I never wanted to do this in the first place. The Crown asked the complainant if she still wanted to go ahead and that it will be, quote, nearly impossible to win, that it's, quote, not taken out of your hands, it's the jury decision and the complainant ultimately said, I don't have any, referring to her credibility, I don't have any, so what's to lose? And that she wanted to carry on. It's a malicious prosecution. Whoa, if, you're, if you're a barrister and you form the view that the allegation you're going to make is not going to be believed... Nearly impossible... Are you permitted to put that allegation or is it a breach of the rules? I'm not saying it is a breach of the rules. I'm asking the question. Well, there's two questions. Can you put the allegation but can you even proceed with the case? I suppose it's the same thing, isn't well, it? But well, I mean, it's it's different to your client, the DPP, might say to you, you have to go forward. Because civilly... But, but can you actually, as a barrister, if you mm. form the view that, that it can't be believed... Can you actually put that proposition? Well, that's an interesting question that arose in a recent case of mine, right, where the it was an alleged threesome, right, and the complainant had credibility problems that were very, very extreme, right? Mm. She was cross-examined. The case was essentially a fait accompli, right? He was never going to be found guilty, and eventually it was withdrawn by the Crown. But the other guy, who at that point was not charged, was called as a crown witness. He gave an exculpatory account. He basically said that it was all consensual, which was consistent with a video of the incident and all sorts of things. Yeah. And the crown prosecutor, who was a very decent prosecutor, elected not to seek Section 38 leave and cross-examine that bloke and put to him that, that he's really a rapist. Because mm. her allegation was she was raped by both of them. Yeah. But for various reasons, only one was charged. So that was a case, and I said to the judge, 
if he had sought leave, because there then became an issue about could the case be left to the jury mm. in circumstances where there arguably wasn't a rational basis to reject him and we'd been deprived of this sort of brown and done type issue. And I said to the judge, well, in fact, if, if he'd sought leave, I was going to oppose it. Mm. And I was going to oppose it on the basis that it would have been a breach of the bar rules to put it to him. Because how could anyone have formed the view that there was a rational basis? And yeah. that, I, we, we sort of didn't win on that basis. But. And to that point, I think under the Civil Procedure Act, or maybe it's the rules, you, you're in a civil matter, which is different, obviously, but if you proceed under the instructions of your client, but you know it's unwinnable, you, you, are, you could be liable in the costs order. Yeah, indemnity costs. Mm. But yeah. like, you can't make an allegation under the, as I understand, under got the a reasonable rules, basis. Unless you've got a reasonable basis mm. to make it. Mm. But it could and, be and that instructions are a reasonable, or instructions can be a reasonable basis, for example. Yes. But, she's, yes, she but doesn't, he or she doesn't give instructions as a complainant. The, D, the DPP herself is not in a position to instruct you about what happened on a particular night. She's relying on the evidence that you, her legal counsel, has in front of you and has formed a view about. If but do you think latitude would be given in circumstances where it is the complainant's account? And you're the prosecutor. Well, I hope not. Mm. Right, there's got to the, be something qualitative the, 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 about it. They the, have to do some kind of assessment. Yeah, sure. Well, what otherwise? And what also we, what an assessment mm. of the particular circumstances that arises where an accused is deprived of using this really powerful exculpatory evidence, yeah. because. I mean, the trial judge said the statute occasions significant unfairness to the accused. That unfairness is real and not illusory. He called the case an affront to justice, but on it went. Should and have been stayed. This case really. It should, should have been. been stayed. Mm. So extreme. Was that what you were hoping for when you read it? That it would be stayed. Yeah, that's why you just put it down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I was doing another trial nah, that was ahead fine. of it in the order, list. Okay? Order, Felicity Never Graham's giving got the a case floor. To Felicity again. No, but this is this is she where shows me up. This is where barristers and directors of public prosecutions and crown prosecutors. This is where we we shine if we're doing our jobs right. Is mm. making sure that we don't even have to bother the courts with circumstances like this because we engage in our professional judgment to make sure that things are right, and that includes the other side of the professional judgment. Like, don't think I'm saying just because someone's made false complaints, you, you quash the matter. No. On the contrary, you make sure that every bloody requisition possible has been made of the police. You've chased down every rabbit hole yeah. and then you satisfy yourself yeah. that that's done and then you do it. That's yeah. the right way to I do totally it. I totally agree with that. You certainly can't take you know? the view that, oh, well, there's a prior false complaint. No. It's out the window. You can't take that view. That's quite pernicious, I think. But, yeah, this is a high watermark of um, an approach that, does not involve proper engagement with credibility on behalf of prosecutors. This case mm. is a high, water, high watermark of that approach, I think. I think it's also, to come back to New South Wales as an outlier, I think it's really important to look at what's happening in other parts of the country because the CCA has basically said, OK, look, this is a matter for Parliament. We're not going to overturn this line of authority in circumstances where the legislature has reenacted the provision after judicial criticism of the provision and they've reenacted it substantially in the same form uh, now on multiple occasions. Um, so let's just quickly look at what is happening in other parts of the country because in other parts of the country, 
there are regimes in each of the other jurisdictions that in equivalent proceedings would um, likely permit an accused to adduce evidence of false complaints relevant to the complainant's credibility and tendency to fabricate because the other provisions, whilst they have a similar starting point in terms of the types of evidence, prior sexual history, et cetera, that is inadmissible, um, remains to be seen whether those provisions would ever be interpreted to mean in the broad way that um, the provision in New South Wales operates to apply to fabrications in any event. But even if they did apply to fabrications... In each of the other jurisdictions, the court retains a discretion to ensure justice. There's an interests of justice test. There you go. And so there's a, I think, very straightforward way in New South Wales for this problem to be fixed, and that is to follow all of the other jurisdictions in the country and give the trial judge the meaningful power to determine what's appropriate according to the particular circumstances of any case. Does anyone know anyone? <clears throat> when was the CCA judgment <clears throat> that said that we'd leave it to the legislature? That was, mm, yes, should we go back? A long time a prior to my election. Yeah. That was on the 3rd of July, 2020. 2020. So three years. And did the previous AG make any promises about this? Or well, they'd look into no, it? No, he elected not to do it. Speaking. Did he really? Yep, totally. Didn't he, Flicky? Well, I he thought didn't. he said he'd look into it and then... <clears throat> he certainly didn't do it. I think you're dealing with the, the... It's around about the time of the Lazarus situation. There was amendments in that regard, probably took priority over this. Mate, this is something that can be done in the NEETS legislation and justice bill. We're talking about the addition of about <clears throat> five words. I've got a conflict of interest in this part of the discussion. Yeah, I was going to well, say... You well, any, in any event, it's pretty straightforward what needs to happen. And I think this is a particularly stark example of how this provision operates in a grossly unfair way and a way, in a way that people in the community would not expect it to operate. If you're sitting on a 100%. jury, you would not expect that the accused is deprived of this kind of material, even for you to consider on your question of whether you accept a, an allegation beyond reasonable doubt. I mean, to the extent that... If you were hearing the evidence of a complainant as a juror, if it crossed your mind, I think you would form the view she, he or she must have not made false allegations before because if they had, we'd know about it. That's right. I'll tell you, I worry, and this is an example of, of it, I worry that the media that's starting to come out about how sexual assault prosecutions are conducted and the rules that apply to them we're sort of entering this anti-Me Too space mm. and it's going to become – we're going to get back into a position where we were where it's going to be even harder to prosecute sexual assault mm. offenders. And I worry about that. And I worry that sort of this approach that's taken to law reform in this area, which is we can't even take a back step of, of, of saying that, you know, the interest of justice might let someone who's lied be brought to the attention of a jury. Like if, they, if we're going to go down that line – it's actually going to be counterproductive. Mm. And I just think reasonable minds need to, to start start thinking about it in reasonable ways. I agree with that, Matty. And I think that some of the discussion publicly about the wash-up of the Lamb and Higgins trial also has that tendency to dissuade complainants from coming forward because 
one of the most important protections complainants have is anonymity. Yeah. And complainants don't necessarily know out there in the community that their anonymity is absolutely guaranteed. And some of the people, a particular authority out there saying when they are considering this issue of the text messages and the politicisation of the Higgins complaint, who are saying, don't talk about these things, you're dissuading complainants, they actually themselves are dissuading complainants because Mm. they're directly suggesting, sometimes in express terms, that, you know, you will be treated like Brittany Higgins was if you come out and we must stop people thinking that. Whereas the truth of the Higgins-Lehrman thing, and I'm not talking about the allegations themselves, but the truth of that whole scenario is that it is so unique and particular and unusual, including her deliberate and intentional waiver of confidentiality, that it's an example of nothing. It doesn't say anything to any particular complainant. And to suggest that it does is to really directly suggest that anonymity is not guaranteed by law. Anonymity is guaranteed by law. You know. And also the suggestion that police, and sure, there's probably some, there's probably one or two out there who still have the old-fashioned views about this sort of thing, but the suggestion that the modern police forces take this antiquated view of sexual assault where they reject sexual assault complainants out of hand is just ridiculous. It does not accord with my experience, and I've done a lot of this work, and I don't know any defence lawyer who's had the experience where they say, oh, you know, it's it's the we often have the opposite experience, which is like we can't believe they charged this case given the problems with it. It's not the other way, and I understand that there's statistics that are bandied about this. I'm not sure I believe them, but we shouldn't be telling the message to complainants that the police aren't going to listen to you because that's rubbish. Yeah, I basically agree with that. Though slight counterpoint, there is the case some um, of Karen Isles, which has been publicised recently, where she made a very serious child sexual assault allegation, and the cops basically didn't investigate it and she's been doing some very effective media highlighting what she says is a requirement for minimum standards of policing in terms of investigating serious allegations she says there should be a statutory duty of care to complainants and so forth and i don't disagree with any of that and i think it's actually consistent with what we're talking about which is proper engagement by everyone involved with the issues the elements issues of credibility just properly dealing with these matters. We need we need a wholesale review of the approach to sexual assault prosecution. In fact, let, let's leave out the word prosecution. How do we need to sit down and with with relevant stakeholders from the full gamut in a room and have a discussion about what the space needs to look like to help complainants, to make sure that innocent people aren't accused, mm. make sure innocent people don't go to jail, make sure that guilty people are punished and rehabilitated, the whole thing. And until there's sort of a real decision to do that, that steps aside from the vested interests that are braying for whatever they want in mm. this space, we're just, you know, we have new sexual assault laws every two years. They're just tinkering. They're just really window dressing for the most part. And it doesn't work. Well, I just hope that there aren't other cases. I, I, I know this happened in this case, but I hope there aren't any other cases. Where yeah, this, is this a one-off? I yeah. know for a fact that there are other cases because off the back of this, colleagues call me and ask for assistance with their cases, ask for help with submissions and how to make a stay or run this point, these different points. I know that there are current cases in New South Wales where this is an issue and the proceedings are being maintained. Felicity Graham, in summary... Look, I just want to come back to the 
law reform space and bit of a fact check live on our, what we've said about Mark Speakman. So according to the Australian newspaper, Speakman quietly circulated a 60-page issues paper for review of the section to stakeholders. That was back in 2019, I think. Uh, the paper asked whether the section struck the right balance between protecting complainants and ensuring a fair trial for defendants and if more evidence was to be allowed, whether this should be achieved by expanding the list of exceptions or giving judges some discretion to admit evidence when the interests of justice demand it. As at September 2020, apparently his department was putting the finishing touches on an options paper and will give stakeholders a chance to make submissions on possible reforms, but... The article goes on that he hasn't exactly been in a hurry to reform the law. Yeah. And September twenty twenty. Yeah. Mm. And okay. Then we'll, we'll await we'll await that report. New South Wales opposition legal affairs spokesman Paul Lynch says it's extraordinary the government has not yet amended the section. While he backs the law's intent, he says it's clear it can also give rise to unintended substantial miscarriages of justice. There's a very powerful case for judges to have an appropriate discretion in exceptional cases to allow into evidence materially cur- material currently excluded, he says. So do we in the next reform bill then, in the next the Justice Legislation Amendment Act. Great. <laughs> Let's wait and see. Well. listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mitts